Matthew chapter 24, we are on the Mount of Olives. Jesus, remember, pointing out to his disciples the, the temple. They said, you know, he, they pointed out to him. He said, you know, there's not going to be one stone here left upon another that's not going to be thrown down. And, of course, it shook them. And they said, well, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age? They kind of put all that together, the, the sign of thy coming, the end of the age. And then they, wondered, they attached a when to that. When will these things be? And Jesus had been talking to them about the signs of his coming, about uh, the end of the age. And he kind of gets to the when of it tonight in, in some ways. If you remember there in verse 30, where we ended last week, he said, And then shall appear the sign. They said, What will be the sign of your coming? Then, in the context he says, There shall be, appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven unto the other. And then he comes to now. He's, he was at then, and he's going to say, now I want you to learn something. It's a... Um, it's a present imperative. Now I want you, you have to be, is the idea in, in verse 32, you have to be learning this continually. Present imperative on that word learn. It's a tough passage that we're going to enter into here because there are different camps amongst our camp, evangelicals, fundamentalists, um, dispensationalists. There are different views of this. Some say this parable of the, the fig tree is simply saying when you see the fig tree putting forth leaves, then you know summer is near. And the basic lesson is when you see all these things happening, then you know that the, these things are, are going to come to pass. And understand this generation will not pass away till all of these things be fulfilled. Then you have to ask yourself, and we'll, we'll do it as we get to it. What generation are you talking about? And he says, when ye, you, first person, see all these things. He's got to be talking to us because these guys are long gone that he's talking to on the Mount of Olives. And, and then he says, you know, it'll be like the days of Noah, the, the, the things were going on. And they didn't know. Until that hour came and they so some say, well, you, you can't find the rapture here in Matthew 24. And I understand some of these guys love them. Some of my friends. But I have a hard time reconciling the fact that he tells us all of these things that will happen up to the end of the age. Then all of a sudden he tries to talk like you need to be on your toes because you don't know when this is going to happen. Then he says, like it was in the days of Noah, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the flood came and took them all away. They didn't know it was going to happen. That's very hard for me to reconcile that with the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation we're studying on Sunday. 
You know, people at the end of the tribulation are not going to be eating and drinking and marrying and giving. They're going to be drinking, all right? Blood, it tells us. You know, uh, there, there's going to be famine. There's going to be, the world is going to be shaken. It's not going to be like people are standing around saying, gee, I wonder if uh, this is the time. No, no. There's, a, there's an element of surprise here. There's an element of something happening that they weren't expecting to happen. So I personally come down on the side here where the Lord now starts to speak to the church. Certainly they would not have understood. You know, um, Paul tells us that the church was a mystery that was hidden in ages past. These Jewish apostles would not have understood if he tried to describe the church to them at this point in time. So some say, well, Matthew is a Jewish gospel, and it is, and it's the most Jewish of the four gospels, but it is the only gospel that mentions the church and it mentions it twice. So I think all of a sudden the Lord switches gears and say, all right, this is a sign of my coming, end of the age, everything wraps up, now you, I want you to learn something. And he's gotta be speaking to us. He, he's not speaking to them, because he, he says, when you see all these things. now." He did that with when you see the desolation of abomination. That's halfway through the, the tribulation. That's the, that's the Antichrist seeing himself on this. Certainly these disciples weren't going to see that. And I think he does very much the same thing here. He's going he's gonna to warn us. Now these are things that you just need to, to, to be on your toes. You need to watch this. You need to learn this. So he kind of gets to the when part of the question in some ways now. Verse 32, he says, Now you must constantly be learning this parable of the fig tree. When the branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know... Now, they would have understood that when he said that, that summer is nigh, that they understood a lot of the trees in Israel don't lose their foliage. One of the ones that does is the fig tree. And then the spring, when it puts forth its leaves, you know summer is near. But Jesus, now remember in chapter 21, had cursed the fig tree because it had leaves and it had no fruit. So is he just making a natural analogy? Hey, and it works. You can agree with that in the spring. The fig tree puts forth leaves, and when that happens, you know summer is near. So he's going to say so always, that in the same manner, you know that the Son of Man is coming. But I think there's more than that there, personally, and I'm going to tell you what I think. The fig tree was a type of the nation of Israel. You, you'll find that in Certainly the, the book of Judges, I, I don't think it's very specific there. Uh, Isaiah chapter 5, you don't have to turn, he uses the, the vineyard as a picture of Israel. And he ends that by saying, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So he's comparing it there to a vineyard. And the, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. So he mentions it there. Uh, in Jeremiah 24, he says he's talking about this vision of a basket of figs, good figs and bad figs. And he said the one basket had very good figs. The other, uh, even like the figs 
that are the first ripe figs. And the other basket had very naughty figs. The idea is rotten, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then said the Lord unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs. Smart answer. Good figs, very good, and evil. A very evil that cannot be eaten. They are so evil. And again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. For I set mine eyes upon them for good, and he says, I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them, and I will not pull them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up anymore. So, again, there's the near and the far there, but he's saying this is like these figs, like this fig tree. I'm going to bring them back from captivity. I'm going to plant them in the land. I think it's a picture of Israel. Um, Hosea says this, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first time and so forth when they went to Belpure and so forth. He describes that situation there. In Joel, he says, for a nation is come up upon my land, speaking of Babylon, strong and without number, whose teeth are like the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste, and he hath barked my fig tree, taking the bark off the fig tree. He hath made it clean, um, bare, and cast it away. So in a number of places in the Old Testament, it compares the fig tree to the nation of Israel, to Jerusalem and Judah. So as I look at this, I think, okay, well, they can say, well, there's, this is not Israel. Um, this is just a natural analogy that when the fig tree puts forth its leaves, summer's near. It is that. But I don't think when we talk about the last days, we can minimize Israel. Israel is in the middle of what everything that's happening right now, and it is the miracle of the days that we live in, and certainly it is the signature of the season that we've entered into, the rebirth of this nation. He says, when you see that, and is putting forth leaves, again, there's no fruit here. 1948, Israel comes back to life, as it were, is putting forth leaves. Then you know summer's nigh, listen, so likewise ye, when you see all these things. That's not the apostles, that's got to be somebody living in our day. So likewise ye, when you see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. And he twice now in these last verses in 24, there's a verily, verily I say unto you. So he takes what he's going to say now and he puts it on the front page and says look I really really want you to pay attention to this verily I say unto you this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled um, first of all what is the generation 
it can't be the generation he's speaking to, right? Because they're gone. He said, this generation won't pass away until all these things are fulfilled. It can't be the guys that are there. Can it be the generation that sees the rebirth of Israel and the things that are going on in the world now? I guess it can be that. Because then people will say, well, what is a generation? Some say it's 40 years. Well, if Israel's reborn in 1948 uh, and we didn't get out of here by 88, we're in trouble. You know? And then, of course, you have um, Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And God says to him there, I'm going to take your descendants down into Egypt for 400 years. And in the fourth generation, I'm going to bring them out again. So there, a generation is 100 years. That's a bummer because I don't want to be around till 2048. You know, um, what is it saying there? And is it just indiscriminate? Like a generation Old Testament, the generation that came out of Egypt was really a 38 generation because they went, took two years to get to Horeb, to Sinai, and then because they turned away in a lack of faith, God said, all right, this generation is going to perish in the wilderness. That was 38 years that was left there. So it's hard to take a number and attach it to a generation. Is it 38 years? Is it 40 years? Is it 100 years? What, you know, and maybe in that we have to be on our toes because we don't know exactly. That's that's cool. But generation genos is something else also in the Greek, and it's a tribe or a race or a people. It's used that way several times in the New Testament. We get genealogy from genos, which is the tracking of family or a, or a tribe or something. It is my personal conviction that what the Lord is saying here is verily, truly, I say to you, these people, this race, this tribe, these Jews shall not, and it's the double negative there, the oi may, these Jews, this race of people, no way, no way, will never pass away, he says, till all of these things be fulfilled. Look, this nation of Israel, look, for all intent, you know, driven out of the land in 70 A.D. Uh, by Titus Vespasian, and then 135 A.D. in the Bar Kokhba revolt, you know, everything then is leveled and it's done. And for all intent and purposes, the Jews disappeared. That's why during the Reformation, Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli and uh, Calvin and, uh, you know, Will, William Farrell and all these guys, God used them greatly to bring justification by faith back to the church. And, and, and they were taking the Bible literally when they did that. But when they looked at Israel, it was a mystery to them because Israel was gone. So then they said, well, circumcision, Paul says in Romans, is a circumcision of the heart. Therefore, all of those promises made to Israel must really belong to the church now. So it became replacement theology and the kind of ran off Israel so that they could then, you know, try to take things literally and, and make it the church. And it never was. 1948, they become a nation again. If Martin Luther and John Calvin and Urg Zwingli and these guys who, who were literalist saw what happened in 1948, they'd have all gone, 
Well, duh, of course, you can take that literally too. So you have Israel. You know, there's no other people scattered throughout the world. There's no Babylonians now. There's no Assyrians now. You, 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 know, you introduce me to one of them. They've all been scattered and they've ceased to exist. But the Jews throughout the world scattered. They kept their language. How did that happen? They come back, become a people again in 1948, speak the same language. They've kept their religion. They've taught their children. They've maintained an identity and coalesced after 2,000 years, become a nation. Never happened before in human history. It's a miracle. And they are so significant, I don't think you can just pull them out of these passages and say, well, this is just speaking about, you know, the fig tree, when it gets green, you know, summer is near. Oh, well, that's true. That's wonderful. But I think there's more that's being said here. Obvious. Israel, in regards to prophecy, is necessary. There is a temple in Thessalonians and Revelation. It is necessary for there to be an Israel. It is necessary for there to be Jerusalem if it's going to be overrun by the Gentiles. It's necessary for there to be Israel and Jerusalem if it's going to be a cup of trembling for the nations of the world. It's necessary for there to be an Israel if the fruit of Israel is going to fill the earth in the last days. It's necessary for there to be an Israel, you know, if, if all these things it says, it anticipates and takes for granted that you and I understand that Israel is a necessary piece of the puzzle in the last days for all of these things to be fulfilled. And we're looking at them today. And, and of course, Israel is a cup of trembling for the nations of the world right now. You know, again, all of the, you know, the think tanks and the, the different intelligence agencies sit up late at night trying to figure out what to do with Israel. You know, because you, you have Islam and they're not going to negotiate away Allah. You have Christianity over there. They're not going to negotiate their God away. And the Jews are not going to negotiate away Jehovah. So you have Jerusalem rumbling all the time. Not because there's, you know, oil there or diamonds there or any natural resources there. But because there's the conviction of men's heart for over a thousand years attached to that place. And to think that you can just write it off out of the passage that's speaking about the last days, to me, is, 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 is not reasonable. I think there's something very evident going on here. He says, For verily, truly, I say unto you, this generation, I believe these people, shall not, no way it can happen, pass away, cease to exist, till all these things be fulfilled. Don't be surprised when they show up again in the last days in the midst of these things. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall, again, oime, there's no way in the world my words are going to pass away. You can, you can write them down. You can build your life on it. These things are going to be true. Now, in verse 36, he says, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my father only. So that's kind of the emphasis now of the rest of the chapter. That nobody knows the day or the hour. You've got to be ready, be prepared, but nobody knows. And we're going to see how he develops that. And look, um, he's, again, he's, he's talking about the situation like it's just going to be a shock. 
Like, you know, and people, you can't make that the parousia, the return of Christ, because the whole world's going to know when that happens. It says in, in Revelation, all of the tribes of the earth are going to wail because of them when they see him coming. This is a surprising coming. This is a coming that comes without warning. This has to be talking about if he's talking to the church and if he says ye in the first person, he's got to be. This has got to be presenting the unexpected return of Christ for the church. That's when we don't know the day or the hour. The other return of Christ, when Christ comes with his church, is known. It's 1,260 days. It's dated. It's very much dated. And Jesus held the Jews responsible in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, when he wept over Jerusalem. He said, if you had only know this thy day, the things that belong to thy peace. Because it was a specific prophecy in Daniel that brought them to the very day of the triumphal entry. And he held them accountable for not knowing. So certainly, if he tells us 1,260 days after the desolation of abomination, when the Antichrist seats himself in the temple in Jerusalem, claims to be God... It says it's 42 months after that. It says it's three and a half years after that. It says it's a time, time and a half a times after that. It says it's 1,260 days after that. It's the most documented period of time in the scripture. So for, you know, what he's talking about here is a day that nobody knows. That, that day will be well known. This is a day that comes like a, it comes as a surprise. There can't be an antichrist, can't be the stars and the sun going out, can't be. No, this comes as a shock. This comes as a surprise. He's got to be talking to us. He's got to be talking about the church. He says, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But... So you don't know it, but here's what he's going to say. But as the days of Noah were, making a comparison, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days of Noah, days that were before the flood, they were eating, they were drinking, they were giving in marriage, look what it says, until... The idea is the very day that Noah entered into the ark, and they knew not. So he says it's going to be like the days of Noah. Now, it's very interesting to go back to Genesis 6 and look at that, uh, because it tells there the earth was corrupt. It was immoral. doesn't fit our day, does it? It says the earth was filled with violence. You watch the news, Chicago, New York, the things that are going on all around us. Talk to the police officers in Philadelphia. Look at the threats of war in the Middle East and so forth. The earth is filled with violence. These are like the days of Noah. And there were some very strange spiritual things going on that I think we're starting to see the dribs and drabs of as well. And he says he gets now to the the apathy, the people that were there hearing Noah. Listen, he preached for 120 years. Nobody got saved. He, you know, for you and I, this can't be a discouragement. 120 years. And they were looking at the boat as it's getting put together. 
You know, the whole generation of people, this guy's wacky, he's building a boat in his driveway, he says it's going to rain. What's rain? We don't even know what rain. You're trying to tell me something's going to happen that's never happened before, and I need to be ready for that? See, that's what we're telling our generation. Jesus is coming. The rapture's going to die. Something's going to happen that's never happened before, and they think we're nutty when we tell them that. Only there's more of us than would get on the boat. And he says, you know, for them, life was going on as usual. They were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. You know, they they were in their routines. And they didn't want to hear what he was saying. And he preached for 120 years. Nobody turned. It was just him and his sons and their wives and his own wife on the ark. Until the day God shut the door and that was it. So he's saying there's something weird to learn from that. Certainly, you and I are supposed to learn from the unbelievers in Noah's day that paid no heed to what was happening. He says, you're not supposed to be like that. We, we should be on our toes. We should be watching. We should be ready. And as he moves into the passage here, he's going to tell us about those who didn't know and didn't watch and they're, they're guilty in another sense that they knew something was going on and didn't watch. Then he's going to tell us about those who didn't know and did watch. That's you and I. We don't know when it's going to happen. And he tells us in the passage about those who do know and do watch. Certainly that's those during the tribulation who come to faith and realize Christ is coming and prepare themselves uh, as they see what's happening in the world. So he says here, look. This was going on. It's going on all around us. You know, you, you see COVID come and if people are freaked out. Uh, people, if they listen to one n- narrative, are terrorized. Meantime, gambling is going up on TV. Alcohol's going up, delivered at home. Pornography's going through the roof. You know, all these things going on as usual when the world is crumbling and crackling, you know, and simmering. And people are looking around like nothing's, and life's going on as usual. People are just trying to stay in the routines and do the same thing. He said that's what it was like then. They were doing all these things, he says, until the day that Noah entered into the ark. It's interesting. It tells us this in Hebrews. Uh, it, It says this, by faith, Noah being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So it says, you know, Noah, by faith, you know, prepared. And it was in regards to something he had never seen before. That's our example. Are we preparing? You know, are we saving our family? Or are we letting our kids do whatever? Or are they watching us do whatever? You know, uh, we have kids in high school grieved about their parents and the way they're living. He says, Noah, a man of faith, he was warned. He took heed to that to the point that he prepared in regards to something he had never seen before and becomes the heir of righteousness by faith. What What an amazing picture. So here he preaches for 120 years, and it says the world around him is going on as usual, like there isn't anything happening. 
until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And they, the ones we're talking about, knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, one shall be taken, the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, one shall be taken, the other shall be left. So, you know, what some scholars do here is they say, well, this is not the rapture, this is exclusively in Israeli context. And uh, two men shall be, you know, working in the field. One shall be taken to judgment, and the other shall be left to enter the millennial kingdom of Christ. Two women shall be working in the field. One shall be taken to judgment, and the other one shall be left to enter into the millennium. Now, I appreciate that, if that's someone's perspective. It isn't mine. Um, I don't want to be uncooperative. It's just I wrestle with some of the simplicity of that. Because it says here, you know, two men are working in the field. Well, is that happening when the sun goes out and the moon goes out and there's no, you know, there's no waters turned to blood. The sun is scorching people. You know, you, all of the, the armies of the world are gathering to Armageddon. People are out working in a the field. They're doing that. I don't think so. I don't think so. It, it's interesting. It says here. They didn't know until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. The taking away there, that took, is a word that means to take to judgment, to take to difficulty, to take to testing. It's a different word than when we get to verse 40. It says, then in those days shall... Two be in the field. One shall be taken, the other left. Same thing with the women. Two shall be grinded at the mill. One shall be taken, and the other shall be left. That word taken in both places is different than the word took. The, 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 the judgment came and took them. They ended up under that. But he says, but we need to understand here in this scene, he says then at the same time, Two men will be in a field. One shall be taken, paralambano, and the word means to take to oneself. Same thing, two women grinding. One shall be taken. The one who's taking here is the Lord, and the word specifically means to take to oneself. It's used in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, where there the angel says to Joseph, after he finds out Mary's pregnant, he says, fear not to take unto thyself Mary to be thy wife. That's our word, paralambano, to take unto yourself. It's used when uh, Jesus in John in, in Matthew 17, it says, then he went up to the Mount of Transfiguration that he took with him Peter, James, and John. That's the word, to take with. Uh, in um, Luke chapter 19, after they come back, Jesus had sent them out in pairs, and they came back and were telling him all the things that went on. It says, Jesus took them aside. That, the idea is to himself. Um, it tells us this in John chapter 14, and you know uh, the text there. 
Um, let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. My Father's house were many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And lo, I go to prepare a place for you. If I come, go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and paralambano you to myself. I will receive you to myself. That's the word that's used here. So I think what this is talk, this is talking to you and I. We're the ones that are to be ready. We're the ones that are to be watching. We're the ones who know he's coming but don't know when. We're the ones who are supposed to be on our toes because when all this happens, two men will be working the field. One will be taken by the Lord to himself. The other's going to be left. Two women are going to be working. One will be taken to the Lord, to himself. Joseph, take Mary to be thy wife. Come with me, guys. Mount of Transfiguration, I want to take you aside. You know, everybody's weary from out. Let's, he wants to take them aside for a while as well uh, when the feeding of the 5,000 happens. Uh, in John's Gospel 14, if I go prepare a place, I will take you, I will receive you to myself. That's what's going on here. And the ones that are left behind are the ones that are not received. They're not taken. You know, they're not brought to the Lord. This has to be a picture of the rapture of the church. There, there's anything else that it can be as far as I'm concerned. Now, I can be wrong. And if you think I'm wrong, then don't be ready. think I'm wrong, then don't watch. You think I'm wrong, you'll find out I wasn't. <laughs> he says because of this, now look, watch therefore. Again, we have another present imperative. You must continually watch therefore. Look, for ye. Now he's talking to us. He's not talking to them. Ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. That's, that's us. We don't know. We, we see the season. We, we know what's going on. But he tells us to watch and be ready. Look, if this is the end of the tribulation, who needs, who needs a watch like it's going to be a surprise? Again, the, the horrendous things that are taking place globally then with the Antichrist and the heavens and so forth. That's not this. This says... Because the Lord's going to come and take some to himself and leave others behind. You must continually, therefore, be watching, for you don't know what hour your Lord doth come. Now, I know what time it'll be when the Lord comes. You want to know? It's going to be 3 o'clock. Somewhere. The world's round, so it's got to be 3 o'clock somewhere when he comes. You know, uh, we, we don't know. He says, you don't know what hour it will be when your Lord comes. Your Lord. Very interesting speaking to us. And now he comes with this final exhortation. He says, but know this. Now, he's done something interesting here. Um, I'll, I'll go back. This is the word gnosko, he, in, for knowing something. Verse 32 he says, when you see the fig tree put forth its leaves and is tender, then you know, and it's to know by experience, to, to become familiar with. And, of course, 
He says, then you know, Summers, that was something they knew. They understood that. And he puts it into the context of the nation of Israel. Then in verse 33, he says, likewise, when you see these things, know experientially, you're going to see these things. You're going to know that it's the time. Then uh, over in Verse 39, when it talks about the unbelievers, it says they knew they didn't have the experiential knowledge. They knew not. And then down here, verse 43 is the last time he uses this particular word in the passage. He says, but know this. You need to know this experientially. This is something you have to become familiar with. This is something you should learn about so you can keep it in your heart. This is experiential knowledge, gnosko. He says, but know this. This is something he wants us to take to ourselves. That if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, four watches in the night, what watch the thief would come, because he says he's coming like a thief in the night. This is a parable. It's not a literal problem. He's making a comparison. He says, but know this. This has to be the experiential knowledge you guys garner to yourselves in regard to all of this. That if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up, you know, to be broken into. So he's saying here, you know, in the natural, if you knew your house was going to be robbed, anybody here your house ever get robbed? It's a bummer, isn't it? Anybody else? You know, because you kind of think when your house gets robbed, it's kind of like this is something that can never happen to me, and it does, so it's really a shock. And that's the way the rapture is going to be. You know, so you don't think, and all of a sudden it happens. He said, he said it's going to be like this. Somebody owns a house, and his house is going to get robbed. He doesn't know when, doesn't know the hour. But if he'd had known what watch of the night it was going to happen, he, he'd have been ready. So he's saying, you're in that position. You're, you're like the good men of the house. You know something's coming, like a thief in the night, but you don't know what hour it's coming. So you need to be on your toes continually. If he knew, you know, we protect our stuff, don't we? If somebody comes in our house and gets our stuff, we're bummed out. Well, are we protecting our eternal stuff? Are we protecting the rewards that, you know, you can't take anything with you, but you can send it ahead? Are we protecting the eternal stuff that is to be ours if we serve Christ now and we walk with him? He says he would have watched, he wouldn't have allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, in light, in light of that lesson, be ye also ready for in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man is coming. Therefore, be ye ready. Here's the picture of the house. It's going to get robbed. The guy doesn't know what's happening. He said, therefore, you also, in the same way, be ready because in an hour that you think not the Son of Man is coming. Well, how do we get ready? Be ready. Uh, what do you do? Um, quick sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Uh, go run home and throw all the beer out of the refrigerator. Uh, you know, how do you get ready? You know, uh, 
we're only ready for this by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to be ready for this. We're talking about the Lord descending with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and, and then the dead in Christ rising first, then you and I. And it says that it's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye, and this mortal is going to put on immortality, and, and this corruption is going to put on incorruption. The idea is in an atomos, in the shortest, you know, the flash of light, we're going to be changed, defy gravity, be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, does that happen because you behave? Is that why you're going to defy gravity and be changed at the speed of light because you were goody two-shoes? No, that's a miraculous thing. And it's only going to happen to us by the blood of Christ. Yes, we should behave. Yes, we should serve him. Yes, we should be watching. Because there's rewards attached to all of that, which is a blessing. And it is an eternal blessing. You know, you're not going to get to heaven and say, I wish I hadn't witnessed to my end. You will get to heaven maybe and say, I wish I had. You know, you're not going to get to heaven and say, I wish I had taken care of this person because I knew they had a, they were going through a mess. You're not going to get to heaven and say, gee, I wish I hadn't taken care of them. You know, there's certain things we do here that, that when we get to heaven, we're rewarded for. But that's not being ready. You can only be ready because you've trusted your eternal destiny to Jesus Christ. He's going to come and shake this whole world. He's going to interrupt human history. We're talking about something more dramatic than the flood in Noah's day, something that's never, ever happened before. And we're trying to tell people about something that's never happened to us before. But we believe it. It's our hope. It's the blessed hope. It's affected our lives. And he said that can only happen because the Holy Spirit has taken those things and made them real to us. Look, you're living in this world, you're here listening tonight, or you're listening on the radio or somewhere, and you're not sure if you know Jesus Christ. What are you looking forward to? Are you looking forward to retirement? Are you looking forward to buying more Krugerrands? You know, are you looking forward to a facelift? I mean, what are you looking forward to? Do we, do we really have a witness in our hearts, though we've never experienced it before, that he's coming for us, that he loves us. It says, well, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will, will show you things to come. And there's an innate inner witness we have because the living Christ is inside of us. And, of course, we try to share that with other people who they think we, we've lost our minds. But we need to do that. We need to live the right way because there's no sense, you know, talking it and not walking it. Again, they watch us. Preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. We're to be salt and light. We're to do those things because there's rewards in heaven. But to be ready for that miraculous, powerful transformation, you can only be ready for that if you're trusting the salvation that God the Father provided for you through the blood of his son on the cross. There's no other way you can get ready to defy gravity and change at the speed of light. No other way. It's not like good people go up and half good people don't. Like a Protestant purgatory or something. He says, he says, therefore be ye, got to be talking to us, also ready for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. 
We don't know when he's coming, but we are watching. That's important. Who then is that faithful and wise? The idea is sensible. Word says wise there. Servant. Are we serving him? Is he our Lord? We call him Lord all the time. You can't call him Lord without being a servant. That makes no sense. Who then is that faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Now, this is a great exhortation for those that are in ministry, but any of us. You have kids at home. You teach Sunday school. You're involved in a home fellowship. You're ministering to people in, a, in, a, in you know, your, your mom or your dad who's in a retirement home. The idea is we're steward over something. We're his servants. He's our Lord. And he he says here, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom the Lord hath made ruler over his household? Uh, Very interesting. It's the word therapeui, where we get therapeutic from, therapy. It's only used four times in the New Testament. Twice it's translated household, and twice it's translated healing. Revelation 22, that the leaves of the tree are for the healing, the therapy of the nations. So God has called us as his servants and put us in charge of a particular therapy that no one else in the world offers. And particularly in giving meat or feeding for me, feeding the flock, being faithful at that, but to give them, those of the household, meet their food in due season. Uh, And again, it's not that that's always appreciated, but it's the word of God. It's the word of God. You, with your kids, there's a therapy that only you can provide as Jesus is your Lord that feeds them, that they can be nourished by. Um, You know, in your household, where you work, whatever it is, for me, certainly it's here. He, he says that we should be busy. We're not, we're not going to get, we're not ready because we do this, but there's rewards. Who then is that faithful and sensible? The word wise there is sensible. It doesn't seem sensible, does it? Hey, Jesus is coming. You know, you're telling people that they don't think you're sensible. They think you've lost your senses. Here it says, for you and I knowing the truth, it's sensible to be his servants and he's given his stewardship in the, in the context of his household, his therapy, to give food to, to feed others in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, mine and yours, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you, that he shall make him ruler over all of his goods. Now, in the, he's telling a parable in the natural. This is how someone would do. The, the, you know, um, Potiphar did that with Joseph and his household. He made him steward over everything that he had because of his faithfulness. He, Verily I send you that he shall make him ruler over his goods. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart... So he's going to tell us right here now, an evil servant is kakos, evil by nature, that an evil servant has this problem in his heart, and that is this, my Lord delayeth his coming, that that an evil, somebody who's evil by nature is, is evil because of a heart condition. 
It's not intellectual, it's a heart condition. Paul says, you know, these things will take place in the last days, perilous times, really dangerous times. Men will be lovers of money. Men will be lovers, you know, of, of pleasure. Men will be, he gives the whole list of me, what men, no love for family, no love for the natural, you know, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. He keeps going through what they're going to love and not love. So it's a heart problem. The last days, a heart problem. And he said they want to have a form of religion, but deny the power of it, the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he says the evil servant, the wicked servant, says in his heart, his heart problem is, my Lord delayeth his coming. Jesus is coming, he's not coming, what are you talking about, you know? And shall begin then to smite his fellow servants and to eat and to drink and to be drunken, which would probably be a typical picture in this day of somebody that was supposed to be steward while the master took his journey. He's told us that in several parables already. He says, And the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not, he's not in the process of looking, the ETH shall's present tense, he's not looking for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of. Now, we're told that specifically by Jesus, not to let that happen to us. It says in Luke's gospel, it says, Take heed to yourselves, Jesus speaking, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged, be overweighed with surfeiting his indulgence and drunkenness, the same thing he's, he's warning of, and the cares of this life, so that the day come upon you unaware. He says here, who is that wicked servant and who's got that heart problem, who says the Lord delays his coming, and he shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and to drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day that he's not looking for him, and it says in a day in an hour that he's not aware. That's what Jesus said in Luke 21. Don't don't be in the position where you're unaware, and shall cut him asunder. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I don't want it happening to me. Do you? To get a cut asunder, he shall be cut asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this great exhortation, uh, parables, learn, you must learn the parable of the fig tree. So it's not just a natural illustration. It's also a picture of something larger. I think it brings us to the nation of Israel. I think this genos has not passed away. The Jews are back in the land. It's alive around us all again. When you see the budding forth of the fig tree, then you know the time is near. And that's where we're living, isn't it? You guys, all of us in here are the born again. Have you ever in your Christian experience, any time in the past, felt the urgency that you do tonight? No, because first of all, COVID came and we all thought we were going to die. So we all took inventory and got real serious for a while. Now it's loosening up again, and because of our sinful natures, we, we, we respond to that. Let's not, because what's happening around us in the world, Israel back in the land, everybody's going, is telling us that he could come like a thief in the night at any moment. And we're his children. He wants us to be ready. 
his bride, the groom's coming to catch it, to carry us over the threshold. He's going to talk about that. We'll talk about that next week if he tarries. If he doesn't, he'll carry you over the threshold. You'll know the whole story anyway, you know. But, you know, the, the exhortation to those that are his to be ready and to be watching because of a, a coming like a thief in the night that, that's unexpected, that can't be the second half of the Great Tribulation. So I, I, I don't know what to do with it except to look at it and say this has got to be talking to the church. If you don't believe me, again, don't be ready. Right? I mean, if I'm taking the wrong exhortation from the passage, that ain't bad. Right? If you, if you blow it off and you, you, you ascribe it to something else, then you can be like that servant that says the Lord delayeth his coming, which we don't want to be. I think it's an exhortation to us that the Lord could come in any moment. So, um, look, I'm 70, so he's coming sooner for me than he may be for you anyhow. You know, and uh, when you can see back further than you can see ahead, my, most of my life I could see ahead further than I could see behind me. At this point, I can see behind me further than I can see ahead. So you get a little more serious about all this anyway, right? Uh, my Savior's coming for me, but I think he's coming for me relative to the days that we're living in. Uh, uh, you just look around and see what's going on in the world, you know? Um, let's stand. Let's sing. I, I read ahead. 25 really takes us to an interesting place. I'm glad we have the context of our Revelation study for all of this. So let's lift our hearts to the Lord. Uh, Father, we look to you, and Lord, uh, we take very quickly personal inventory. If there's places in my life, Father, our lives, that need to be more yielded, if we, in certain areas, really need to live like we're ready and we're watching, Lord, you've asked us to do that and said it's a necessity, Lord. Help us live that way, Lord. Help us if we don't do it. How can we give an answer to every man for the hope that we have? Lord, these things need to be real to us. And you know our nature, Lord. We, we get hot and cold, Lord. Uh, something blows up in the world. A disease hits the whole country. And we're hot. We're right in there, Lord. We're, we're looking for you. Taking inventory. Straightening out things in our lives. And then it seems when things relax a little bit, all the same junk is there. If we want to do business with it, that was there before. Lord, we ask you that by your spirit... You'd make these things real to us, as your word says. We ask, Father, that you would fill us afresh, that there be a fire, Lord, in our being, in our heart, a holy fire, to burn away all nonsense, Lord, the person of your spirit. Lord, we ask in regards to our kids and our neighbors, the people we work with, the people we have home Bible studies with, that we would be therapy, Lord, that it would be nourishing, Lord, to those where there are stewardships in our lives. And, Lord, that we would be ready. Lord, we wouldn't be discouraged, even if we preach for 120 years and nobody responds, Lord. That in faith we would move forward, Lord. As you said, Noah did. And he responded to something he had never seen before, Lord. Let us live that way. Father, we need your daily, Lord, moving in our hearts, daily exhortation of your word to constantly live 
in light of something we've never seen because our senses were on sensory overload, Lord, with mobile devices and television. And we see all kinds of things constantly flooding our hearts and our minds. And you're asking us to respond to some other thing that we have never seen before, Lord. By your grace, Lord, we can do that. By your grace, by your grace, Lord, we can do that. We can be ready, Lord, we know, by the blood that you shed for us, Lord. By the salvation and the forgiveness that's ours without merit that we can never deserve. Lord, we're growing in grace and in the knowledge of who you are. We do pray, Lord, anyone here this evening that's never come, you'd get a hold of their hearts tonight, Lord. You'd cause them to come up and ask questions after the service. Give us the privilege of praying with them and seeing them saved. But, Lord, let us live with a sweet urgency, Lord. Let it be real in our individual lives. Lord, some of us here, you know, Lord, we we need to be reproved. We need the, the rebuke of your spirit. We need for our health, Lord, to, to be challenged, Lord. Others of us, Lord, we need to be more therapeutic to those that are around us. Show us how to do it, Lord. That, that again, is through the power of your spirit, not of any reservoir of our own. And, Lord, all of these things speak to us about watching, being ready. Something's going to happen in an hour that we, we don't think it will. Help us live that way, Lord. We're never going to do it without you. Lord, if we do that and you come for us and we stand in your presence, all of the glory will be yours, Lord. We're not looking for any pat on the back for doing something in and of ourselves, Lord. We want to respond to your love. We want to respond to your warning and to your care. And Lord, we believe that would please you. So be gracious to us in this endeavor, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.